Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. What's the problem? We shouldn't be playing God. God creates all men equal, but once they get out of the womb, he starts playing favorites. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the philosopher Peter Bogosian has resigned from Portland State because of the retaliation he faced while standing up to illiberal ideologies. If I remember correctly, you were pretty hard on the conceptual penis hoax. Do you want to take this moment to apologize? <laughs> Dear James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckerose, um, yeah, okay, I saw this, and I've seen, you've probably seen a few times where uh, somebody has pointed <laughs> to our interview with James Lindsay as the, the sort of turning point in his career, where yeah. he just became, <laughs> so, you know, I, I take a little responsibility uh, for for that, although... Uh, but this is but, not James Lindsay, this is Peter This is Bogosian. not James Lindsay, this is Peter Bogosian. <sighs> not, okay, he resigned, and yep. then... Did you see his his tweets asking why no liberal journalists are looking to interview him? And then like <laughs> no, that's like great. no, but that doesn't surprise <laughs> me in the least. He like actually like copied like at CNN and like at somebody. He's like, I'm here, you know. I like I all these conservatives want to interview me, but I don't know why. I mean, and I posted at, like on Barry Weiss's Substack, like just like this horror story of how I was treated at Portland State for just standing up for free speech. Like, you know, can you can you imagine like doing at CNN, like asking for an interview? Like, if somebody who's gonna see that and be like, oh shit, he's right. You know, we've dropped the ball. Like some intern Manning, the like, like who does he imagine is gonna enter? Like Nick Kristoff or something? Like, is he gonna like interview him? Like back from Somalia? Especially, he's like an Oregon guy too. Like, it's really, it's shocking. <laughs> it's shocking. It, it really, it's really is. It's just, it's just more proof that you know he's right. You know, we really are descending into totalitarian. It's like, uh, didn't Barry Weiss also resign? Like, there is this, this sort of like, I'm resigning, and then like, let me, let me call out the victim card because right. It's like, like I wanted you to fire me. Like all, like I've waited yeah. to be fired, but you guys won't fire me. So now I'm going to resign so I can be the martyr. Yeah, there is there like maybe there's this hope that in memory it will change and people will be like Peter Bogosian was unfairly ousted from his right. from his position. No, I mean it's already happened. Like, you know, for the people who are on board with this, like the Andrew Sullivan, they essentially treat like 
Peter Bogosian as if he was fired. It's like yeah. he, 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 he put up with like the harassment as long as he could. But then finally <laughs> he had to step down. You know, he was uh, a non-tenure track um, professor at Portland State. And my guess is you make a lot more money being, you know, the free speech martyr, being the yeah. I'm standing up to like critical race theory and like stopping the tsunami of illiberal ideologies from sweeping the land. than you yeah. do just kind of teaching a few courses a year. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. this like this is a failure of the market to to adequately compensate <laughs> non tenure track faculty. But I don't know if he was trying to get into the tenure track or if he was going to. I don't know what was going on, but you know, the, the, the reason that he was disciplined was for, um, not having cleared his research through human subjects that, that quote unquote research where they sent out fake journal articles, um, because technically they were involving editors in, in, uh, an experiment and they, you know, they, they think that this is the, the stupidest, most unfair, biased treatment because who would think that that's human, subject, human subjects research? But that shit happens. In fact, it happened to Elizabeth Loftus at University of Washington where she was disciplined by her own university, at least not supported by her own university because she did some, some research. There was, you know, she studies false memory and there was a person who was claiming that they had evidence that their patient had actually experienced memory recovery, like this false memory recovery. And they had published this article, like a case study. And mm. the case study was like, I had this young girl who was traumatized by this incident. And then years later, it's like the claim was that they, they had videotape evidence of her spontaneously recovering memory. So Elizabeth Loftus and her co-author went uh, and did some like journalistic investigation to try to find out who this patient was so that they could like mm -hmm. write an article, like whatever, defending themselves. Well, they uncovered who it was, and that woman sued Elizabeth Loftus for having, whatever, investigated her and, like, sacrificing her anonymity. And then University of Washington said, you never cleared this through human subjects. And Elizabeth Loftus was like, no, I mean, this was just a journalistic thing. Like, I was just literally investigating the claims of, a, of this person. And she even says, they told me as much. But... Basically, she got sued. The school didn't defend her. They didn't give her the money for a defense lawyer. And they disciplined her for not having cleared that even that little thing as a human subjects uh, right. violation. So it's not like this is just being human. Like ethics committees are serious and you can't just like even if you think that this might not count. You have to get it cleared through your universities. Uh, yeah. Support. So, uh, I mean, of course, nobody liked him there. It's a liberal university. Like, right. I'm not even saying that that's I, not true. But. I'm sure he had a he was he had a hard time yeah. at Portland State, and they probably wouldn't have pressed like a charge like that or whatever Title Nine uh, yeah. charge, which they ultimately like found in his favor. But that's what happens when you go, like, when you devote your entire career <laughs> to just antagonizing, like, a big group of people. You have to yeah. expect some pushback. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the fickleness of, the, of the, the people who who push and are surprised at the pushback is just, it's like... That's the nauseating part of it. Yeah. And it's especially with, like, this kind of person who thinks, who thinks that, like, 
society is getting wussified so i'm gonna yeah. like you show like how dumb everybody is and then when they get pushed back they're just wusses yeah they go on barry white's <laughs> Substack and like yeah. whine about it no i mean yeah. that's the thing that like this is the the uh, uh the thing that absolutely drives me crazy but this is like people wonder why i care so much like why i react so strongly against a lot of these people when at times i have agree with the things that it is because they they on the one hand want to just like loudly and constantly mock and attack um this large segment of the population and then when that segment of the population pushes back they cry they cry about it like just don't cry about it like that's you're in that game yeah yeah it's the crying about it that that drives me insane and it's in marked contrast to a to, to somebody who was legitimately canceled, um, yeah. Norm MacDonald, after yeah. he... <laughs> he there, uh, there's the segue. <laughs> there's, I, I promised you a segue here. Uh, Norm MacDonald, who was canceled by Saturday Night Live, like he was doing Weekend Update, he was very <laughs> popular, canceled by Saturday Night Live. Like not, not like he was compelled to resign, but was just fired um, by Saturday Night Live because they asked him to stop doing so many OJ jokes and <laughs> on Weekend Update, and he didn't. He just kept piling he them just, on, like, yeah, to the point where it's it was almost absurd. Like, the, the whole joke was, OJ has nothing to do with this, but, like, he's guilty. <laughs> and so he was fired. And, like, unlike the Peter Bogosians of the world, the Barry Weisses of the world, the people who just resign and claim that, you know, this is just an intolerable climate right now, he was just, like, they were totally, like, within their rights to fire me. They asked me to do something. I didn't want to do it. Um, it Maybe it wasn't funny. And so they fired me. I have no problem with that. And right. he's, he's that's one of the things that I, like, I, I respect so much about, like, about him. And yeah. I guess we're going to talk a little bit about him right now. Yeah, let's talk. But, but yeah, before we get away from this, though, it's we we know people who have been unceremoniously let go, like Will Wilkinson, friend of the podcast. Yeah, that um, was bad. That was bad, right? Mm. Uh, he, like, I'm, he didn't turn it into his career to complain about this. No, like, not at all. Yeah, no. Um, like, he, like Norm, he was just like, look, they they wanted. I understand why that happened, right? Yeah. Um, and not, you know, not everybody, obviously, like on the opposite side of the, these culture wars are, are, are like that. Like, I think, I don't know, maybe this is a topic for another time. I don't, like, I think Jordan Peterson isn't that kind of fickle. Yeah. Right. Like, I agree. Yeah. He's a different, like, <laughs> yeah. he's a different animal when it comes yeah. to this kind of stuff. Right. You know, and I think like. Right. But Norm, so fucking pure. sad. Just sad. Like, and, and, the, the, he had a kind of integrity, like a, his weird kind of absurdist integrity that was just like unbreakable, like just Un, unflinching. And, you know, yeah. he was just so naturally funny that he, I think he was always going to have an audience so long as he kept doing work. So I guess he's lucky in that sense. But, uh, he, you know, he took risks <laughs> That like very few people are willing to take with his with his work, um, and just yeah. refuse to compromise his kind of vision, which is a very unique vision uh, about like what comedy ought to be. <laughs> Did you hear about this? He was on a sitcom. It was supposed to be like uh, like based on Newhart, 
you know, like he was an innkeeper and it was just going to be a sitcom, like exactly like Newhart for the first four episodes, which is all they aired before they were canceled of just like a, a their innkeeper is in Vermont and the crazy characters. <laughs> and then in the fifth, like the way this was planned was in the fifth episode, his, his wife was going to be murdered. And I then the show would turn into like a Matlock thing where he's like <laughs> trying to like solve murders to like make up for like not having like saved his wife or something like that. But because it never got to, like, I, like, I, I heard this from like a longtime kind of writing partner of his, but because like the fifth episode never aired, they never, but if it had aired, Wait, like, his but wife it, no, just would have been murdered. But it did. So uh, I, I just Wikipedia it, and there were two full seasons. So this is a different sitcom then. Oh, so it's not the Norm show. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> I would have loved that show. <laughs> I would do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he died, and like it was weird. I don't get worked up by celebrity. You know, when Michael K. Williams died from The Wire, like yeah. I was really sad. What's more iconic than Omar from The Wire and, right. and a bunch of other stuff that he did that that's really good. But, you know, it's like I didn't know him and I, I don't know. Like I was sad, but I was sad in the way that I'm sad where a lot of other celebrities that I love died. Yeah. But then Norm, yeah. there was weirdly, I wouldn't have necessarily predicted this. It was weirdly different. There was something. I know. I, I, I Like I was shocked. But again, you, like you say with Michael K. Williams, like it's not like I wasn't shocked about that. I think like I, my sort of personal relationship to Norm, like my, my, the way that I consumed him was through l l every podcast that he ever put out. Um, and I think that, that like gave some intimacy to, you know, yeah. uh, you feel like, you know, somebody a little bit more. Um, and the way, you know, I remember reading his whatever his autobiography, whatever you want to call it, his memoirs. Did you ever read that? I did, yeah. Oh, man. it's You can't tell whether he's lying or telling the truth. There's some sincere moments in there. But there was something that was sincere about him that, like, drew me in. And also this, like, very postmodern-y, like, t like, it's completely unclear when he's being sincere and when he's just flat out yeah. lying. <laughs> it's almost like, like, he was, like, Gen Z before that existed. Yeah. Like, his yeah, level yeah. of it's just... Absurd, yeah, the absurdity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is remember. why I think he's so universally beloved, is, like, he hit, he checks, like, a lot of the boxes of, like, what you would find funny. Yeah. Although, in a weird way, like, I remember watching him as the anchor, the, the anchor on SNL, and I think a lot of people didn't like him. I think that in in retrospect, we recognize him as a genius, but he had this deadpan delivery and a lot of his jokes would bomb. Uh, you know, he wasn't going for the, the least common denominator jokes. And the more the joke bombed, the happier you could see him like smirking. Like he just had a real. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He had, he definitely didn't measure like the joke by the outcome. Like I think no, he right. he really just like if he thought it was a good joke, like I'm sure he might have shaped the jokes over the course of like, you know, like and worked on them based on people's reactions, but like if he thought it was a good joke, he couldn't give a fuck whether people <laughs> yeah. laughed at it or not. Well, this this is so like I think the quintessential Norm Macdonald bit is what I talked to you really briefly before we started recording to make sure that you'd seen it, but it's in the roast of Bob Saget. Yeah. When he gets up there and gives like a five minute set, that's hard to describe because it's like cringe 
like that he turns into comedic gold but basically he just he he makes these jokes that are like they sound like 1940s zingers you know yeah it, it's uh so like ro- it's a roast and and like the whole point of a roast is to just like push the boundaries there's no line at a roast yeah. and you're supposed right. to cross it and you're supposed to be really mean and horrible <laughs> to the people that you're like not not just the like the roasting target like Bob Saget but everybody else there you're just supposed yeah. to like insult them forever and then here he's saying like no there are times when Bob has something on his mind when he wears a hat <laughs> But no thoughts at all, just a hat. (laughs) And Bob is not very worldly. He thinks the English Channel is a British TV station and not a body of water separating England and France. When he wears a hat, yeah. (laughs) Just like stuff like that. Yeah, so he's just totally deconstructing it. Uh, Right. Right. And, and, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many people in the world could pull that off, but there is a, like, there's a hilarious amount of tension and discomfort, even amongst the, like, co- the stand up comedian audience. Cause at first, they're just not sure what's going on. They're not sure what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure. No. You know? You're like, is this building up to something? Right. It's not even like my favorite thing of his because it's a little one note, like the thing that he does, but I have nothing like I will defend to the death his right to do it. Like, I love that he did it. That's Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. It's a a quintessential Norm MacDonald move. I agree. It's not, it's also not my favorite of his bits. Like, I I mean, I think his Netflix stand-up special is is peace norm too. I do too. And that's what's so like, so like, I don't know, like people don't know this and haven't been like diving into this, but apparently he had cancer for nine years and practically told no one, including close friends and family. And then clearly when he did that Netflix special, he was just like, you know, he was in the middle of dying and just, and and it's so good. Like I urge (laughs) all of our listeners to watch it. It's so good. And, and I think so. So back to that um, Bob Saget roast. There's a moment at the end when he stops doing the shtick. Yeah. And he just says some really nice things about Bob Saget. Yeah. And you can see Bob Saget like about to cry. Yeah. Because if Norm goes out of his way to say something that nice and sincere, then it means a lot. And even Norm looks like he's, he's choking a little bit, um, choking up a little bit. And uh, there is this beautiful tension between the, like the odd absurdist sincerity in which he's telling, giving these zingers and then his switch to just being absolutely a hundred percent sincere. Yeah. Um, that I don't know what it causes in me, but it's very different from like, yeah. it was almost like, here's my tribute to Bob Saget. I'm going to do like this, like tight five of like weird, clean jokes in a way that, <laughs> No, totally. And I think the reason is like I was listening to him, like an interview that Mark Marin reposted with him. Like he genuinely liked Bob Saget. I don't think he likes yeah. that many people. No. And so when he really likes some, like if, if you're really liked by Norman McDonald, that's a huge honor. But it's <laughs> funny, you say like you feel like you have this connection with him um, because or you're maybe listening I want to his it. podcast. Like he makes me want it so much, I think. Like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but like it's very hard to like know him you know yeah, like it's a, like yeah. unlike a lot of the other comedians that i like where it feels like they're bearing their souls to yeah. you 
it never feels like that with Norm Macdonald. It's very hard to kind of know who he is like deep down and yep. what he is deep down. Like, you know? Yeah. I, th- I sent you a little clip um, earlier today that's sort of heartbreaking because he's talking about cancer directly in an mm-hmm. interview. Um, but the, the interviewer asks him, you know, do you talk about yourself? Like you're, your stuff, like he had a gambling addiction problem yeah. uh, it, during your stand-up, and he says, no, no, like I never talk about myself. He's like, I talk about the universal me, um, which is, you know, like I say that I'm scared of death, but that's just because like everybody kind of is, and so I'm, but I'm never actually, like he, he wasn't revealing himself. Like he's, a, he's always a mystery. You just never, there's, I think it was in, I, I think in the New York Times, uh, somebody wrote a, a thing about him. I think it was here that they point out that there's, there's this one moment where he tells Jay Leno that he's the greatest late night TV host. Yeah. And you could just tell, you can, you can tell that Jay Leno's confused, whoever the interviewer was is confused because nobody knew whether he was being sincere. Right. <laughs> to like, this day. Like, and nobody ever will, I think. <laughs> right. Even though like all his like iconic talk show bits, which are, I, I think my favorite, like if you if like you said you can only watch one genre of Norm Macdonald, I might do him being on Conan and Letterman. But yeah. I don't think I've ever seen like him on Leno. Like I like that's <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah. There's so many great. There's so much great stuff with him on Letterman and especially Conan, but not yeah. yeah so like what? Like I I would be surprised if he really thought that, but I wouldn't be. Like, I would still put it like 30% that he just thinks <laughs> yeah. he's the best, you know, like he's yeah. like, this is what the job is and he does it the best. I, you know, I listened to his, uh, his memoirs, uh, called based on a true story. I listened yeah. to it as an audiobook, which I think gave that extra, yeah. the, the extra feeling that you're never, he's, he's like in the, like his whole thing is like two truths and a lie kind of like you. Yeah, there are moments <laughs> right. of vulnerability that you clearly can tell that something is there, but he peppers it with such obvious outright lies. Yeah, that that it's like it's an interesting relationship to truth, where the truth never emerges from the facts that he's presenting. The truth only emerges as is communicated by the sentiment of what he's saying. Some some the spirit of what he's saying is is. As as with most stand-up comedians, I think they're up there saying true things, and that's that's why the best of them are funny. Um, but with Norm, he's he's it's never by saying true things, really. <laughs> no, and and like what's like different about him and like Norm Macdonald, like there's no pretense really, even in the book, even in his memoirs. Yeah. Like there's no pretense that you're really gonna get insight into the real Norm Macdonald because, like you said, he just peppers in these like random ob kind of obvious lies, but then like also yeah. like things that don't fully make sense. And so you don't know what's true and what's a lie. So you don't know what really is being like, what part of him is really being expressed and, and reflected and what part of him is just like, he thinks it's funny. That's the thing. He's like kind of, uh, inscrutable, you know, in yeah. that way. And, well, and yeah, that's yeah. very different from most, from a lot of stand up comics it that is, are like I think iconic. That- yeah, and I think that that you know we've talked about this, but part of what we really like about certain set of comics is that they are authentic. It right. that they they really they really are be making themselves somewhat vulnerable with yeah. their sharing, right. and it's actually like a the odd man out 
for me to like Norm Macdonald so much because he doesn't make himself vulnerable. Like he yeah. has a wall that he is creating between you and him, but there is something about the little moments of, of sincerity yeah. that they're not about sharing who he is, but they're sharing something, something authentic in the, his mental process. Like, yeah, the universal, like, you know, uh, I don't know if you listened to the Mark Marin interview, but he, he, but. he was scared of death. Um, yeah. so already you have a connection with him yes, and actually, denial yeah. of death is like a book that he turned to, to try to deal with it. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 They taught him and Marin talk about denial of death and oh, his Becker. I and, that tonight. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I don't, like, again, like with all the norm, little pieces of insight, like you're not going to get very far with it, but you get yeah. little pieces of it. I would say like, you know, I, Mark Marin, as he sometimes does, like gets about as much out of him. That's real norm as, as you can get like stuff about his parents, stuff about, um, you know, his early career. But, um, but even there, it's like, there's just a, there's a limit that's pretty, you know, there's a low ceiling for what you're going to get out of him. But it's interesting that like, he had that, he had this, he rolled with, the ups and downs of like being uh, an actor and comic as about as well as anybody could. <laughs> yeah. He rolled with like going broke three times from gambling, like a crippling gambling addiction. Yeah. He rolled with that like about as well as anyone could. But then he did have these little bits of darkness like about death, which yeah. again makes it especially <laughs> sad that he, this is the way it, where it turns out, you know. Yeah. And, you know, like, I, again, re totally respect that he didn't want people yeah. watching that Netflix special thinking that, oh, this, this poor guy, he's dying. Like, yeah. he's a hero for doing this. Like, that's the opposite of what yeah. he wants you to think about him. Yeah. And uh, I, he says that that's courageous. You know, he says, like, I, he, in his opinion, he thought that going up there and, and garnering sympathy from the audience wasn't nearly as courageous as people say it is. He thinks, you know, the story that he tells in that little clip is about an actor who, who offed himself after not telling anybody that he had cancer. And he yeah, says, the no, guy, Richard brave. Farnsworth. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask you, you know, in that little interview, he says that he's, he, he doesn't care that much for Lynch. Did this yeah. alter your relationship? <laughs> I like, uh, I, I almost refused to do this. <laughs> Although I loved that he called the straight story a hard G. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so funny it made me want to watch the movie uh, yeah, uh, no, me too. yeah yeah for some no that's why i forget i mean obviously i don't give yeah. a shit if he likes lynch or not <laughs> right. like he loves tolstoy who i love so that like oh, we're, e we're even there but like clearly he loved that you know the darkness of the russian literature that we yeah. gravitate towards yeah it's it's so obvious in his in his moth joke that you, you tweeted. Like his moth joke thing. is like, yeah. exactly like, <laughs> I mean, like it's so clear that he, re like I, when I play it for students in intro, we read like uh, this big segment of Tolstoy's confession, like his like struggling with the, the fact that we die strips away all meaning from life. Uh, and then I do the norm thing and he's just practically referencing like, <laughs> parts of it in it so he's yeah again like he would never he would never say it and we even want you to know that that's what he's doing but yeah. um that's part of the great comedy of that joke yeah you know there's a there's i think a, a real um upside to not revealing too much of your own personality either or you yeah. sorry your own personal life or your beliefs because there were times during his podcast 
when he would say things that I, I really didn't agree with. You know, like he would express some political opinion offhandedly. He it went he, against your liberal orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like he and like he, he seemed to still be a believer in God um, yeah. and had had some of that, which, again, like I, I don't care like you like you and, and Lynch. I don't care because that's not the part of Norm that I care about. Okay, you know, that's well, you know, that, he, he gave a reason in the Marin interview f- f- uh, for why he believed in God. He's like, so like, I don't like art. Like, I don't want to look, look at a painting, you know, although he also talks about just crying when he saw what like maybe it was a Vermeer. He didn't say, but like, it seemed like it was based on the description. But he, he says, I don't like art, but I got into literature and I got into Tolstoy, like people like that, Dost- Dostoevsky. And they seemed like really like excited about God, like that they were like interested in God. And like these people are really, really smart. And they're like at least exploring like the possibility of God. Like, so who am I to be like, no, that's bullshit. That's ridiculous. Right. I think it's that's like, like your, it's like your Mark Twain ghost uh, argument. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I like, I think that's like a, as good a reason to believe, like, or at least to not believe in God, but to just be a little more open to it yeah. than you were before. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I don't, uh, yeah, as good a reason. That's right. He, he clearly wasn't close minded uh, other than in his belief that women just weren't funny. <laughs> I think that was, yeah, I, did he say that? I haven't come across that. He in. said it and he would say it on occasion in his podcast in this way where again sometimes you weren't sure if he was just saying it to be politically incorrect or whether he was expressing this he would ask his his guests he'd be like no no seriously like name me like five funny women you know Yeah, so I, I would buy that he believes that, but he also might not. Like his his longtime producing partner, his like lifetime producing partner was a woman who yeah. just like handled everything for him. I think he and, really just enjoyed making guests uncomfortable in that yeah. way. Because yeah. to 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 knee jerk say, of course women are just as funny as men, and then be put on the spot to come up with five very funny women. Right. It's an uncomfortable thing to have to defend that your your desire to be politically correct when you might not be able to off the top of your head that way. Um, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I right, love. So let like, me I'm... ask you, name five funny women. <laughs> I'm just going to name people I know in my personal life. Um, no, one, one day we can talk about uh, just sex differences in general and whether they exist. But, but I mean, all, like I... I've come around on women being funny. It's, like, it's uh, something I just don't think that women are rewarded for nearly as much as men like so i you know whether or not there are as many funny women i think isn't nearly as interesting a question because i don't think it says anything that much about women specifically i have women in my life also that are that are very funny uh, yeah in right. a in a different way but like very very funny they're funny in their in the way that they sh- sh- their shrill voices and annoying demeanor. <laughs> they're funny in the way that they're constantly like cooking and <laughs> they're bad at math and stuff. It's hilarious. Like the it's terrible. Um, anyway, we lost a great comedian, and and I think both you and I agree that that the art form of comedy is, I think, one of the best things humans have done as a species, and we we lost somebody who was. Yeah. Just peak, peak. 
Yeah, and pure. Like, just, yeah. like, his own thing. There's nobody... You couldn't try to be a Norm MacDonald. It wouldn't work. There's nobody like him. There's nobody that will be, like... He was his own thing. Like, that's yeah. pretty uh, remarkable, you know? Yeah. Like, there's not that many people you can say that about. Yeah. Um, is there, like... Since this is turning into the opening seg, the whole opening segment, is there a quintessential Norm thing that you think? Like, yeah. or or maybe your favorite? I... I don't know. I mean, the moth joke is up there. Um, yeah. I <laughs> like, yeah, there's a, like there's a joke he tells about the logic. Pro- yeah. There's a joke he tells about the logic professor neighbor that yeah. I find hilarious that I can't, <laughs> that I can't tell cause I'm not in Norm. <laughs> yeah. The way that he delivers some of these punchlines. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny joke because it's not like, unlike the moth joke, it's not as funny as it goes, but no. then like, it's like well constructed because like it wouldn't work if it was as funny as the moth joke as it goes, like (laughs) given the punchline. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And again, you know, he's doing some sort of performance art there that is not just in the telling of the joke. It is something in everything that it is to be a standard comedian throughout all these years and like to be in this particular climate and just like be willing to tell that joke and, He's a master. His Netflix special is a ma- I like I was telling you, Dave Dave Chappelle is up like up there for me. Norm Macdonald, I think those are the two people like personally, personally, like I want to live forever. And the degree to which they clearly, I think, have meticulously structured their whole set is they're just geniuses at what they do. There's yeah. something in the organization itself that's like we would learn a lot being able to structure lectures, just the way that they can structure. <laughs> totally. It. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, like, we could break down, like, a special. I, like, I don't think yeah. you should do this for comedy, but in the you could do it in the way that we try to do for a movie or for, like, yeah. a short story or something. Just, like, do, a, like, a deep dive into how it's constructed and what it means and stuff like that. The problem is with comedy, I think that kind of ruins it yeah. a little bit. So right. we wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I would say, like, for me, quintessential... Or and like some combination of quintessential and favorite is the Steve Austin thing in the Netflix special, where like old again. Steve Austin um, from the Six Million Dollar Man. So what's his, what's the actor's name? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I won't remember, but I know exactly who you're talking about. That <laughs> joke is quintessential Norm, and the punchline <laughs> is so perfect, and it's one of those where the audience like pauses almost for a second and being like wait that's the joke and then everyone starts laughing yeah just because it's like so brilliant it's, it's, it's so funny and it's, again it's not totally clear why it's funny or what's funny about it like it has that a kind of norm absurdism but it's, it's also it's abs- like poignant and like you know existential, like an existential despair yeah, yeah like, it's existential despair to be able to like boil down <laughs> existential despair and yeah. you know and maybe the, the maybe the the trip the perils of capitalism or whatever you know like to to have it just boil down into the way that he like ends the joke like the the tone of his voice as he says it it's just it's, lee majors is the actor. lee majors yeah, yeah that's who he is yeah poor <laughs> lee majors he's only i think norm could could just deliver jokes like um yeah like he would say like you know the more i learn about this this hitler guy yeah. the less i like him you know <laughs> He's like, I'm not uh, like a big history guy, but <laughs> I'm worried about the Germans. 
<laughs> I also love the joke of like how you can lie, but like, but you don't have to lie. Like if you want to like deceive people, you can just tell the truth word for word, but in a really sarcastic <laughs> tone. That whole bit is really, really funny in the new special. <laughs> that's, that's yes, I, I love, I'm attracted to your sister. <laughs> yeah. I want to have sex with your sister. I, like even at our wedding, like I was looking at your sister. And I, was like, I want to fuck her. <laughs> oh, so good. All yeah. right, rest in peace, Norm. Rest we in miss peace. you. Yeah, we we'll, didn't, we'll say, right we didn't, we didn't even say what we're talking about. <laughs> Doc. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we. We were going to talk about Robert Nozick and even recorded part of that, but like we audibled into Meditations on Moloch, which is a Scott Alexander, not his real name, um, Slate Star Codex essay that our listeners have been asking us to do for a while. All right, we'll be right back to talk about that. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored once again by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash VBW. You know, in the last few of these uh, spots, I've talked a lot about stress in particular because with the start of the semester, we've been experiencing a lot of stress, but that's not all therapy is good for. A lot of people are suffering and they're suffering a great deal because they don't have somebody to talk to. They don't have somebody to turn to for their problems, whether those problems be depression or anxiety or grief. Therapy is... Uh, I can't say enough about just giving it a try because you never know what you might get. BetterHelp is just that. It's customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Some people much prefer voice only. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist, a licensed professional therapist, in under 48 hours. So unload some of those stressors, get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. Just see if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10%, as always, off their first month at betterhelp.com slash vbw. I really do encourage our listeners to give it a try if they have not already. That's again, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we love to take a moment and thank all the people who get in touch with us, who um, interact with us, and who support us. If you would like to interact with us in, uh, in the online arena, 
You can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at peas at Tamler or at Very Bad Wizards. You can like us on Facebook, like and comment on the episodes on Instagram. You can join the, the, the large, thriving Reddit community. Throbbing. The large, large and throbbing Reddit community. Yes, the pulsating, <laughs> like, bulging Reddit community. <laughs> uh, and um, where we sometimes, you know, we'll pop in and, and give our two cents. You can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We just got, I don't know if you saw... The uh, one star? A one star review. Not an ironic, repugnant one star review. No. Just an actual one star review, which I, it hurt my feeling. And I took that personally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. All of that helps us um, reach audiences that we wouldn't otherwise reach. Move up those charts and uh, massage our very tender egos and uh yeah thanks to everybody for um getting in touch with us got some really nice emails lately too just beautiful yeah really 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 kind emails we live for those um and if you want to support us in more tangible ways we always very much appreciate that um we appreciate uh all the people who have donated to us via paypal you can do that by uh just going to our very bad wizard support page and you'll see a link there. You can give us a one-time or a recurring donation. Or uh, if you're able, you can become a Patreon member. We love our Patreon supporters. We have a number of uh, tiers that you can join. You can just get ad-free episodes at $1. You can get our bonus segments for $2 and up. In um, both of those, you get my beats. For $5 and up, you get to vote on an episode topic that's been suggested by our Patreon listeners and that we do a couple times a year and that where we poach all of your good ideas. And we very much appreciate that. You also get to watch my uh, intro psych lecture videos and uh, everything else. And the Brothers Karamazov series. Oh, and the Brothers Karamazov uh, five-part series that you'll have access to. And uh, $10 and up, you get, that's our top tier. You get to ask us a question. In fact, Tamla, you just posted our most recent "Aua, ask us anything." Yeah, uh, we already Aua. have. <laughs> we already have like a, a couple how. of questions. Exactly. Um, we already have a couple of questions uh, up, and uh, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do a video. Ask us anything uh, once a month. So, so if you'd like us to answer your question, go ahead and join us. We appreciate all of our patron supporters. Um, and all of our PayPal supporters. Uh, you can also support us if you want by going to our website and checking out our merchandise. We have cool t-shirts and hoodies. Weather's getting crispy out here. It's maybe time for hoodies. You can get a, a mug to drink your hot cocoa for the fall. Um, yeah. So so thank you all for for all of your support. We We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you very much. All right, let's turn to our main segment now. The main segment that we so clearly teased throughout the whole opening segment. <laughs> yeah. Mainly we're a, a podcast that just talks about comedians and why we love them. But this is actually our second go around for a main segment. We called an audible out of... Actually, an audible is not a good metaphor because that would imply that like 
we changed the play before we ran, <laughs> we ran the play. It's like trying to call an audible in the middle of a play. Yeah, I'm going to go right. <laughs> Flag, not post. Can we just do that play again? Can it be second down again? I promise <laughs> this is the only. But yeah, we were going to do it on uh, Robert Nozick's famous Wilt Chamberlain argument. And we may yet, but yeah. we weren't fully ready for that. A bunch of listeners throughout the years have asked us to do meditations on Moloch by the blogger Scott Alexander. And I will, re- I will respect his privacy by yes. referring to him as Scott Alexander. I, I agree with that. We will not dox him like a certain (laughs) (laughs) very well-respected news organizations. (laughs) It's a very long piece and a very big piece of work. Like, I don't know how to get into it. Um, There's no easy way to get into it, but here's what I was thinking. So we just did this Marx episode, which I thought like the response to it was on the whole really good. Like I personally was very happy that some of the Marx friendly people that I know liked it. They didn't think it was perfect, but you know, they thought we did it justice. So I was very happy about that. And I expected, you know, people to be like, Oh, like you guys are fucking dumbasses. Capitalism is the best thing humanity has ever produced. That was actually my stepmother. <laughs> <laughs> she, she actually did like react strongly against it. And and, and and now says she's coming back on the podcast to talk to me about it. Like she's coming out of retirement, like for one last job. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> that never ends well. She wants me to read this like trans libertarian blogger, Deirdre McCloskey, I think. She's like, once you read that, you'll be, you know. Uh, all these delusions will be cleared from your head. But like there was a kind of criticism that we got that I think is fair. You know, we really didn't talk about um, the any alternatives to capitalism, specifically communism and, you know, when it's been tried and also whether capitalism was the problem, but w- instead of something else about modern life, you right. know? Um, and so I thought the best version of this criticism because there were a lot there were a lot some bad versions of it but i think the best version of it came on reddit and i'm not on the page i like cut and pasted part of it so um while uh, you're while you're doing that there's there's something that that did that should have anticipated that bothered me about some of the response which is uh, you know i in my naivete i wanted to read the communist manifesto and alienated labor and take them as works on their own and uh, evaluate them and talk about the ideas and not be forced into a discussion about whether or not, you yeah. know, like state communism, you know, why, why is it that every, you know, there's only three communist nations left and they all failed and what, you know, why capitalism is so much better. I, didn't, I don't, don't care that much. I mean, it sounds terrible, but I don't care that much, at least in that context. I just wanted to talk about those papers and whether they resonated and uh to to get angry people again i'm stupid to not think that this would happen but to get angry people saying like some version of you're so dumb for thinking that that uh stalin was a good guy or some right Right. because it's a really like like we're not qualified to talk about um the various different communist like enterprises like clearly stalin like and the Soviet Union, uh, 
that was not a that, that was not a success story you know, morally or just in any way and clearly like north korea you know like doesn't yeah. seem like it's working out cuba you know like they i again i don't know enough about this but the little i've looked into it it that seems like a trickier case you know like there yes there's a lot there is a lot of pushback and uh and definitely some misery but you know some of that misery is because we've had an embargo on them and yeah, like but, forced other countries to have an embargo on cuba so like it's like this these that, that stuff is complicated yeah. and we well, don't like we don't know shit about that like, no, there's no no point in pretending we do no and i don't want my point here to be lost which is that yeah. that's not even what i wanted to talk about and i don't think mm-hmm. that's what i did talk about like what i cared about was what the the sort of psychology and sociology uh, that marx was trying to point out and whether it resonated at all like i actually personally don't know what the upshot is of pointing out that there's alienation and labor, like if that's a communist system as a solution for this or not, like I, that's sort of not where my mind right. was. It was just like, right. what is Marx saying here? And, you know, Marx like famously didn't really talk very much about what the communist, the new communist city would look like. Um, he was more focused on the critique of capitalism. And I think you can, to an extent, separate the critique of capitalism from whatever kind of vision you have of a of a better society and that's kind of what we did but this is why i respect this version of the critique that we have is because i think it like understands that that's what we were doing and still like raises an issue with it so this is this is billy of baskerville i'm glad i took the time to like look (laughs) and see who it was um and also like one of the things i hate is people who comment before they've finished listening to the episode. <laughs> and so this is one of those people, but, you know, it turns out, like, he's totally right about, like, what he presumed. But so he says, um, one question I have, like, he agrees about the alienation of labor, is whether this argument is really unique to capitalism or whether it's present in any system that eff- that emphasizes efficiency of production. And we can talk about whether, like, you know, capitalism is where that, emphasis is is greatest um and if he says the rise of assembly lines in the usa and equivalently cog and machine state-run schemes in the soviet union they both ended up alienated workers and exploiting them um and if that's the case then the contrast may not be between capitalism and communism but rather between something like large scale versus small scale shoemaker in the book small is beautiful argues that in these Debates tend to conflate a number of in principle separable dimensions, free market versus planned economy, private versus public ownership, democratic versus totalitarian rule. The reason this matters is that if we're going to levy critiques of capitalism and its consequences, we probably want to make sure that what we're critiquing is capitalism specifically and not some other correlate of capitalism. Or at least I'd want to make sure of that if I were wanting to reform or rebuild a system. Right now, clearly, we don't want to reform. Like, we don't no. think that that's our. Sounds like a lot of work. Uh, it sounds like way too much work. Like, I don't want to be on a like a commi- like on a Senate committee in my university. I also think I'd be really bad at, you know, <laughs> at bad at that. Someone who doesn't who doesn't maybe have such modest aspirations is Scott Alexander. And the reason I I think this might bridge to this blog post is I think that's part of his point. It, um, it's not that he doesn't agree with some of these critiques of capitalism that Marx levied. In fact, 
he has a little line about Marx where he says, anybody who thinks Marx is just saying, you know, like capitalism is just greedy businessmen, like, you know, factory owners with their like cigars, like doing, they're doing a disservice to Marx. He like his critique of how like the incentive structures under capitalism works. Scott Alexander agrees with it's just for him the like a, a small subset of the problems that just face rational agents trying to coordinate in a land where there are limited resources. There are all sorts of coordination problems that just inherently arise, including the capitalist, the ones that happen under capitalism, but not exclusively that. Right. So uh, I think like to the extent that, you know, like this Reddit commentator and, and Scott Alexander might critique Marx, it's that he's thinking too small, which is a weird way of, <laughs> right. of reacting to Marx. But he thinks that like, capitalism is the problem when it's just like life that's the problem right. like human life that's the problem and and what this essay does is in great detail run through all the ways in which these prob these coordination problems manifest themselves and also some different ways that people have tried to address the problem and then he takes the transhumanist side at the <laughs> end which was kind of surprising and in not in necessarily a pleasant surprise but yeah what did you think of this well first of all i think well said i think that the, the way that you bridge the two things and the the broad description it's hard it's weird to have a work that is hard to summarize because it is asking the biggest question you can ask this is like yeah. the broadest question. It's like, what's wrong with civilization or what's wrong with existence as we know it as limited <laughs> agents who are competing for resources in a, in a finite uh, environment? I, I mean, I enjoyed this. Like, I don't have a lot of uh, experience reading Slate Star Codex. All I know is that people who I respect seem to love his writing. I've read maybe two or three of his blog posts. I know that sounds weird because I think that, that I like, like the way that he thinks. Um, yeah. I would think, like, I'm surprised that I've read more of his stuff than yeah. you have. It's it's yeah, just lazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's just a few meta points that I want to make, though, uh, about how Alexander has structured this, which is this is this is what blogs seem made to do because you can't there's there's no way to publish this as a regular paper and have it really appeal to anybody who publishes journals or books. Um, it's a. Uh, yeah. It's it requires links to other things. It requires uh, just this sort of I don't know how to say it other than HTML-y kind of way of communicating, like an internet very internet way of communicating. Totally, and like it's interesting because a uh, little pull back the curtain. We were scrambling to find a new topic once we thought like the Nozick thing couldn't be rescued, and so. Like we came across this and both of us kind of looked through it and we're like, ah, this seems like we could. And then as I'm reading it and it's just not, it doesn't stop. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like it just keeps going. And like, there's not, a, there's, that's really specific to this form <laughs> right. where it's like, you don't know how long, it's not like a book where you can tell how long it is. It's not even like, like a, like an article on a website where you can easily like scroll down. Like it just kept going. <laughs> exactly. Just like. And it's it's also I while well written, obviously, I think 
Um, yeah, he's a good writer. Yeah. It's also not structured in a way that I would ever structure a paper. It, it's sort of all over the place in a way that, that, that I think betrays that you don't need a, a particular kind of discipline to write a blog post. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. I don't, no, know if, totally. if, if I don't know if this is to its credit. Like, no, yeah. I would say that I wouldn't have minded a little more organization. No, me but, too, but because yeah. like you, yeah. especially when you don't know how long it is, you're like, wait, has he made his central point yet? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it t- it takes you on a journey though, like, because I, you know, at first I was like, wait, is he, like, I thought he was a libertarian. Is he like Marxist? And it's like, no, okay, no. Yeah. Oh, what? Wait, now we're looking, now we're talking about like social Darwinism. And like, right. so the, the fact that it's not structured and gives you a roadmap allows for that. But yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it starts off quoting at length Allen Ginsberg's uh, Howl, the second part, yeah. which is just sort of the persona. There's the the god, the deity Moloch, who is famously, I think, shows up in the the Bible um, early on as this sort of like a, uh, an idol that is worshipped um, by the rebellious Israelites. But you know, those, those dang those, rebellious Israelites. <laughs> <laughs> um, it apparently, you know, it seems to be, and Alexander takes it as a one big sort of personification of not civilization, but like the, the, I don't know, the entropy producing, soul destroying, resource taking beast of, of existence in, in a finite yeah. world. I mean, he even says like a lot of people, and if you, we're not going to read the poem because uh, no. we're not beat poets, <laughs> like we don't have that delivery. But like, I proposed, by the way, I proposed Tamler snapping while I <laughs> while I put on like a. I <laughs> I can't snap like really embarrassingly, so I would have to read it, and I you know. He says, like a lot of people say that Moloch represents capitalism, and he says that that's a piece of it. It's even a big piece, but Moloch is bigger than capitalism. Yeah. Right? Like capitalism doesn't have granite cocks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which is a line in the poem. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> right. It seems like a sort of inevitable, the, the inevitable non optimization. Yeah. Life. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, sort of big picture, as Alexander describes it, is. Look, there are all of these coordination problems that really make it hard to optimize for as a unit to say, like, this is the best existence for all of us. Because as everybody tries to maximize for themselves, it ends up sort of inevitably turning into this terrible, terrible system where everybody is actually contributing to the destruction of the system even though yeah. they're locally trying to maximize their own their own right. utility and, and sacrificing their values sacrificing like, their values and so you slowly turn turn into this you know Moloch sort of slowly eats eats everything so he says let's run through 10 real world examples of multipolar traps um, that you know humanity faces and a lot of them aren't real world which is a little frustrating <laughs> It's like he just says, like, the prisoner's dilemma, yeah. like, by two very dumb libertarians. But, like, that's not a real world thing. Uh, Even, like, the, uh, the like, they're, like, a lot of them are thought experiments. Yeah. And, but... There's a lot of, like, even when they're thought experiments, they, I don't know about some of them, but some of them clearly are pointing to real issues, like the arms races. Um, yeah. The, yeah, the two-income trap, the race to the bottom... Right. They're all uh, game theory examples of how how things get fucked. 
And yeah, when he says real world, I think he, he means as in academics sometimes talk about them. <laughs> right. But, real world, like Rawls, talk right. like under the veil of ignorance. But as with all uh, game theory, what's being attempted is a, a microcosm of the larger system in a very, very simple mathematical way of understanding it. Um, but just to give you a, a, like a taste of what this is, obviously our listeners should should read this. Many of them already. <laughs> yes, <laughs> many of them already have. Uh, so the eleventh eleventh one he gave he gave is education, and he says in my essay on reactionary philosophy, I talk about my frustration with education reform. People ask why we can't reform the education uh, education system, but right now students' incentives is to go to the most prestigious college they can get into, so employers will hire them whether or not they learn anything. Employers' incentive is to get students from the most prestigious co college they can, so they can defend their decision to their boss. They can defend their decision to their boss if it goes wrong, whether or not the college provides value added. And colleges' incentive is to do whatever it takes to get more prestige, as measured in U.S. News and World Report rankings. Whether or not it helps students. Does this lead to a huge waste in poor education? Yes. Could the education god notice this and make some education decrees that leads to a vastly more efficient system? Easily. But since there's no education god, everyone is going to follow their own incentives, which are only partly correlated with education or efficiency. Now, I mean, like, unlike the prisoner's dilemma, this, this is a real thing, yeah. right? Like, this is, like, a problem that does capture, like, a, the kind of the heart of the problem of why education reform is so hard. And, and there's no easy fix for it. Right. And as he, as he says repeatedly, the, the clear fixes to all these problems, so prisoner's dilemma, tragedy of the commons, like he uses a fish example, um, mm -hmm. Malthusian sort of population explosion, um, these are all these are all these problems that emerge when people are locally trying to maximize and then just brings everything down. Um, the solution would be for everybody to agree to not do it. Right. But obviously, but, he says that doesn't happen. Like you can't. Oh. <laughs> Right. All you need is one person right. being like, eh, but what if I just, you know, like right. uh, didn't play ball? Yeah, that's like the, the running sort of common thread of all the coordination problems. Right. He also mentioned science, by the way, which is another, I think, good example. So so publication bias yes. and, and people don't replicate and um, you know, science has all these problems. And it's because any given scientist needs to publish more in order to get tenure and grants and be able to keep doing science. And um, it would be great, for instance, in my field, it would be great if we could make it so that graduate students published less and they would actually take more time to do a project where they could, you know, make it all open, pre-register and replicate somebody else's stuff. And like in, in five years, get two really good projects done. The problem is everybody says that that would be ideal but there's always going to be someone who published five things and not two things and they're yeah. going to get the job. And so right. this is an arms so, race. And all of these examples are of the same, you know, are of a kind, right? They're all yeah. sort of specifically different. And so like, I, I don't know if this is a fair way of talking about the various solutions that he tries, but he does say like, so you think like, let's get a totalitarian leader there, but you know, that has its own problems. Yeah, uh, but where, there's a, some point where he says monarchies like get a bad rap. Yeah, I mean, because I think he thinks like that's a that's a way to try to deal with this problem. Yeah. Like the, the 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 essay is 
the status quo is unacceptable. So, like, monarchy is at least a way of trying to defeat Moloch, right? Like, just letting Moloch eat you up, which is kind of what we're doing right now, isn't acceptable according as I see it according to this piece. Yeah, what I what I like about these points uh th- these examples and the point he makes with these examples is that it would be a mistake to think that it's not that people don't know what the obvious solution would be. So when he talks about corporate welfare, he says, "Look, everybody agrees that a system would be better without a ton of government corruption and and corporate welfare. Like it's not as if people don't realize that the system sucks. It's yeah. just it's it's like there's no lack of ideas. Yeah. I mean, he says every two-bit author and philosopher has to write their own utopia. Yeah. For the record, I have, n- I, I don't have to write my own utopia. <laughs> but then he, he just says, uh, here's two utopias. The utopia where in- instead of government paying lots of corporate welfare, the government doesn't pay lots of corporate <laughs> welfare. The utopia where every country's military is 50% smaller than it is today and the saving goes into... Uh, infrastructure spending. If there was a way to coordinate this, like that would be that would be huge. Yeah. We just haven't figured out how to like how to do that right. within any kind of system. Yeah, make- not just capitalist, uh, at least according to him, but just any kind of system. Yeah. We haven't figured out how to defeat like the inherent corruption that is just endemic to any form of political organization. Yeah, yep. Um, right, like arms races just don't make sense. Like. Both countries are trying to always have one more bomb than the other country, and so, so yeah. of course, that's a rational move on their part. So, so can, let me let's uh, take a step back just before we get to like the proposed solutions and say, like, I think this does assume a a, a view of human nature as just hyper competitive self interest maximizers, or or does it? Like, that's my sense. In contrast to Marx, who thought this is the vision of human nature under capitalism and like once capitalism starts to become the ruling ideology people view humans as these isolated atoms trying to only maximize their self-interest scott alexander thinks no that's really how human beings are you know with like lots of different local exceptions but ultimately when it comes to these big kinds of problems that's the thing that's always going to get in the way of co-op, the God's eye cooperative solution. Right. Yeah. I, this, this was my, I think, biggest issue with the way that this, uh, this essay is argued and framed, which is I think he just takes for granted that, that we're all self-interest utility maximizing creatures who left unchecked by a central authority will run rampant in this self-interest and destroy things. And it's odd because he doesn't even, this is just the, like, the running assumption. You know, All of these examples of people essentially being defectors in a prisoner's dilemma because that's what's yeah. rational. Um, all of them seem to me to, to be interesting examples but have plenty of counterexamples of like, yeah. you know, how, how often this isn't the case because you know, our psychology, I think, is built such that we, for instance, care about things. And it, it, I don't think this is a, a fatal criticism because Alexander is saying that what these systems might lead to is sacrificing our values. I think all I would say is that our values are more internalized than he seems to uh, admit or agree or consider even that there is something that we've learned about putting people in prisoners' dilemmas, which is 
they don't always defect defect. Like the, yeah. the crazy thing that needs to be explained is why people don't always right. defect defect. And that's because I think we have some really built in, I guess I would say, um, reasons to not do this. And because of that, we've solved so many coordination problems that we can build amazing things and have nice things. Um, yeah. Like this is, it's like, this is written in a world where like Joe Henrik and Bob Frank and like, yeah. uh, like all this work about how we're not homo economicus. We're, we're not just purely self-interest maximizers. We have emotions and we have social norms yeah. and cultural norms that restrict us. And it's not that he doesn't acknowledge it. It's just that he barely acknowledges yeah, it. Right now. Like, I think this is a totally valid criticism, but I also think that I, I think that a lot of these problems are big enough that whatever like emotions and cultural norms and values that we've put up, it ends up gobbling those up too. And I think like like the the charitable reading of this is, yeah, he doesn't emphasize those things, but he does talk about how values um, are these things that can go against self-interest but they just end up getting gobbled up by Moloch just like everything else, you know? Yeah, so you might say, well, if we're that bad, you know, at like working together, then why is it that we are, you know, in some ways we have accomplished things that no selfish individuals could accomplish on their own. We've created institutions and, you know, art and... um philosophy right. and literature and buildings and healthcare we've done so much and he he is i think cynical though about why we've been able to last this long so he gives yes four reasons why he thinks we've made it so far one yeah. which i found kind of like an interesting section on slavery where he talks about physical limitation he's like well look even if the incentive is increasingly to work everybody into the ground you can only push people so far um, there will be physical limitations to uh, to our greed or whatever, our, our maximizing. Right. Um, yeah. He says excess resources, like so far we've just not run out. So like, yeah. you know, that whatever our, our the, like uh, um, cooperation problems haven't, we, we've always been able to get resources. Even if we ruin one pond, we go fish in another pond. Right. So right. we often at the expense of some other country or <laughs> like <laughs> population. <laughs> right. There's, there's an interesting use. Yeah. When I say we, sometimes I wonder what, but yeah, but yeah. as, as humans, at least um, the other one is util the utility maximization. So um, he thinks we've just been very efficient at maximizing utility in a way that's just allowed us to, I guess, skirt some of the problems. Um, and that, that one I didn't quite understand. He uses this, like this coffee example from Ethiopia. Of, yeah, I don't see what, like, this is supposed to be a, pro, not a problem, like a solution, but a bad solution yeah, to this problem right. because it's not going to last. Yeah. Um, right. Because it's, it's too it's fragile, exactly, yeah. right? Um, and then finally he yeah. says there's, you know, these three are like bad ways in which we've been able to maintain or, or grow. Um, the one good way we've been able to avoid Moloch swallowing us is, is through coordination. Again, he, he says here, he says the best known solution to the prisoner's dilemma is for the mob boss playing the role of a governor to threaten to shoot any prisoner who defects. The solution yeah. to companies polluting and harming workers is government regulations against such. Now, like I, this is where just, I would put into the coordination subheading, 
that we've we've evolved various ways of coordinating. And you don't need a mob boss to solve the prisoner's dilemma for you. Um, there's you know it might be fragile, like to to rest the success of uh, future human civilization on some of these old emotional responses or on our built-in desire to to have values and create norms might it might be a bad thing but it's certainly i think people have convincingly argued that it is the way that we came to coordinate with each other the fact that humans didn't consistently defect with each other and cooperate and and the the reason that little kids like playing with each other in the service of a common goal and chimpanzees don't is just that we're built differently. And so the coordination problem comes easier to us. Yeah, I just think that, like, that's true. And I think he undersells it. Yeah. But then I also think he's right about the fragility of that and that when the chips are down, when the stakes get a little higher, that's when some of these things do start to fall apart. Yeah. The fragility is there. And I think one, one uh, I think, very real reason that these kinds of responses collapse is the size the fact that we don't live in small communities anymore means yeah. that it's easier to not have any right binding with everybody around you because you know you, you probably won't get caught cheating you don't care if you're screwing over somebody you don't know all of the things that might be mechanisms that emerge really well in a small society can easily go away when you know there is there are these large structures that keep the incentives alive but don't keep the the psychology of of yeah. coordination and and punishment or desire to to trust all those things kind of go away um, yeah the, the to the redditor's point yeah this might be a small scale versus large yeah, scale exactly. problem and when anonymous when you're just an anonymous person trying to make your way and you know that other people are fucking over the system and when you fuck over the system it's not hurting anybody in particular it's just maybe at some level it hurts these other people you don't know but um they're also doing it like yeah you're gonna do it there's no there's no psychology in place to stop you from doing right. that. by the way do you know that this reminds me of the example of the professor who um would ask his students for like their exam they would say okay you have two choices you can either say that you want two points of extra credit or six points of extra credit. But the catch is if more than 10% of you say six points, then nobody gets anything. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, a, a class of truly sort of coordinated people would say, well, look, like just nobody say six because then we'll all get two and that would be fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but apparently he's been doing this for years and has never had a class actually get any extra credit from it. Do you ever do, I, I do prisoners dilemmas for extra credit uh, sometimes, not really, but like, and I, I get a lot of cooperators yeah. for it, you know? Well, that like, actually shows. So like maybe I think, I feel like if you put two people in a game with each other, you might get a lot of cooperation, but the minute you make it the whole class and say, right. but I mean like I do, well, they're anonymous though in the, my version of it. But are they playing so with, they're the, just, are they playing a game with each other or are they playing like the whole, they're playing a game with one other person. They just don't know who that is. Yeah, but that's what I'm and saying is that I think that, that that matters. I think that when you know that you're potentially screwing over another person, that you oh, might be yeah, a little yeah, yeah. less likely to do it than like... If you're screwing over like... Yeah, if it's like a drop like in a bucket. The there's a drop in a bucket right. sort of effect where you're like, well, look, like 
I don't want to be the sucker who doesn't select six points and have like somebody else get six points. The greatest example of this, there's this uh, Hofstadler, you know, like Gerda Leschel, Bach. Hofstadter. Um, Hofstadter, yeah. <laughs> Not Jeff Hofstadler, the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Buffalo Bills quarterback, yeah. Uh, who, he described this experiment where he told people, look, you have like 10 minutes and if nobody presses a lever, you all get $100. If you press a lever, you're going to get $10 no matter what anybody does. So then it's like, it's like the, your, yeah. the professor thing. It's like, well, obviously just nobody press a lever. We'll all <laughs> yeah. get $100. And what he says is like, if you run this for like a couple of minutes, like nobody will press the lever. Hmm. The longer you stretch it out, you start to think, but wait a minute. What if somebody <laughs> else just pr presses a lever because they're just being a dick. Yeah, there's a bunch of people here. There's a chance that one of these people is just like a, a total dick. And then he's like, but that's not enough usually to make you press the lever. It's when you realize that other people might be thinking that same thing. <laughs> and then like, so it's this revert, he calls it like reverberating doubt. Like I haven't read this in like 20 years, but like I remember that like phrase, maybe. Yeah. Like I don't know if it's right. But reverberating doubt, um, like where once you just get on the tr little train of this thing that maybe these other people, for reasons that I understand, because it occurred to me too, you know, then it's like, all right. And then like the longer you make it, the more people will just press the lever. <laughs> and if you even have some awareness that that's going to be the case, then then you should press the lever. Yeah. Because there's no chance that like 20 people sitting there for an hour are not going to like, right. are not going to do it. They're not going to figure that out. Right. And I, and I think that, that that sort of framing of like reasonable people with not evil intentions and not just selfish in like the psychological motive, like in the like immoral right. sense, but rather right. people who are like, look, look like, let me be reasonable here. Like, I'm not yeah. like, am I really going to risk not having, especially if the resource is something that you really need, like, are you going to yeah. risk not being the one to take it? And, and maybe in some cases not eat, no, not have yeah. rent. Right. Um, yeah. The higher the stakes, like a lot of this stuff goes exactly, out the window. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by NordVPN. You know how Netflix is always pulling your favorite shows and movies out of the blue and there's nothing you can do? They just vanish. Poof, they're gone. Like, here's an example. The very underrated Ricky Gervais show, Extras. It's gone from Netflix, not on HBO for some reason. I don't know why. You can't even rent to stream it on Amazon. It is unavailable. But not with NordVPN. With NordVPN, you can access content from over 59 different countries by changing your virtual location with one click. I live here in Houston, but with NordVPN, I can be anywhere in the world virtually and access content from those regions. If something is streaming on Netflix in Spain, I can watch it. If Extras is on the BBC in the UK, I can watch it. Sweden has the best Netflix movie catalog for some reason. I have no idea why, but the movie catalog there is incredible. Maybe it's to compensate for the food or something, which is... Ugh. Also, if we ever can travel out of the country again, you can still have access to all your U.S. streaming services. Imagine how Pizarro will feel if he's on one of his trips to Qatar and he can't watch some new fucking Marvel show or something, or like Rick and Morty. You know who would have to deal with the consequences of that? Me, on the next show. NordVPN solves all of this. You never have to miss your favorite show again. NordVPN also provides ironclad security for when you're using public Wi-Fi and worried about hackers stealing your data. 
And while some VPNs slow down your internet speed to an intolerable crawl, that's not a problem with Nord. It's the fastest VPN in the world, and you can have it up on up to six devices, laptop, phone, smart TV, iPad, even your router. So all your devices are protected. So go to nordvpn.com VBW or use code VBW at checkout and get 73% off your two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. Be quick because this offer is for a limited time only. It's equivalent to like buying a cup of coffee every month. Small price to pay for premium cybersecurity and access to vast amount of entertaining content. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee if NordVPN is not for you, so there's no risk at all. Once again, go to NordVPN slash VBW or use code VBW at checkout and get 73% off your two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. Thank you to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode. There is this part in in uh, this post uh, where Alexander says he agrees with Robin Hansen. This is the dream time. Currently, we're in a rare confluence of circumstances where we are unusually safe from all these multipolar traps because of the reasons that we just outlined. And as such, weird things like art and science and philosophy and love can flourish. I like I as pessimistic as this post is, I kind of like that thought that like we are living in this little ribbon of the time in which this has civilization has been able to flourish. Yeah. It depends what he means by that. Like what, like what's the time period that we're talking about here? Uh, Like if he's talking about the last like 4,000 years, okay, maybe like, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's what he's talking at that scale. Like this is the last, whatever thousands of years where we've had yeah so he's not talking about he's it's not like a pinker thing no it's like no, this no, is no. the dream time right. since the enlightenment no. or something no. like that. i think okay. like you know as, yeah. since we've been able to coordinate on a on a large enough scale to do things like write books and leave them for other people to read or whatever um, right yeah okay yeah so yeah i mean like i i think at the same time he also says that like hunter gatherers were so much happier <laughs> yeah that, like than people i know there, there are th- had agriculture you know like so <laughs> like there are there are yeah when he's talking about your diamond sort of agriculture uh hypothesis uh when it's like yeah like that we made a mistake because we were locally trying to maximize and and got into agriculture seems like the wrong framing to me like what what the ability to to have division of labor in agriculture led to a lot of really good things, like including not dying like a painful ass death when you're 31 because as a hunter gatherer, that's an old age. Yeah, like I believe that it might have been like like more communal, more just active and fun uh, for hunter gatherers than maybe your average uh, yeah. person in modern society. But uh, but uh, it's 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 not it's certainly not obvious. <laughs> like it's definitely a trade off of maybe like well-being minute to minute versus just length of life and then uh, and also just yeah i i don't really have anything about this actually so now now this takes this goes into weird territory yeah (laughs) you want to describe the weird territory it goes into um all right like let me see like he has this long section where he says um like no matter what you think the solution is here, like yeah. it's not going to work. You're going to die. Everything's going to go to shit. Right. 
Um, yeah, the the Nick Land part yes. where he's yeah. like, he, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, like I, I wanted to mention this before, he has like a nice sort of kind of poetic uh, section where he talks about being in Las Vegas in the middle of the night and looking over the land and being like, wow, this really is Moloch. And he describes the proliferation of casinos as being like, and this is so true. This is such a good description of Vegas. A, a new casino will open because it has like one more thing than the other casino. Yeah. And they will quickly, like those casinos have such a short shelf life because there's always a new casino that's opening with like whatever, you know, what, like a bigger, uh, yeah. bigger rooms or more fake gilded shit, you know? And yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like impressive on one level, but reprehensible. Yeah. Like I think is it's also, it's like a sign of a certain kind of, civilization and progress but then also a sign of just we're fucking this up yeah. we're taking all this ingenuity and we're 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 like remodeling paris like for <laughs> for, for tourists that are c coming there to lose all their money essentially yeah it's such a great it's such a great microcosm uh, because on the one hand, when I first read it, I was like, yeah, but there's some cool shit there, man. Like, there's some amazing shit in Vegas. Like, it's one place you could go and just be blown away at all this stuff. But yeah, it is. And just, like, <laughs> sit down, play poker. Yeah, and, get a lap, but yeah, it get a ruins people's lives. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say anything bad about Vegas. <laughs> a lot of good times there. But Right. So, okay. Uh, but I get, I take his point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can we talk about this Nick whatever thing? Yeah. Yeah. Nick lands, like, Ganon. Yeah, I which is something that he's criticizing, but he says that we are, it, it, Ganon is shorthand for nature and nature is God or nature or nature is God, uh, and, but it's reversed. And he says we should be more like nature conformist, right? Like we, uh, we do all these stupid things like divert useful resources to feed those who could never survive on their own or supporting the poor in ways that encourage dysgenic reproduction or allowing cultural degeneration to undermine the state. This means our society is denying natural law, putting ear, fingers to our ears saying like, you know, so civilizations that do that tend to decline. And so we should like, it's essentially social Darwinism. Yeah. It seems like it's making the same exact point and mistake that social Darwinism does. Um, and this is where, what you talked about, like, if you don't work, you die, the yeah. wages, you know, stick to the devil, you know, you died, but like, it's like you die either way, yeah. right? right. <laughs> is Scott Alexander's point. And like, and I've never heard of this guy. Like, I don't know to what extent people really think this, but he says that the Nick Land is a guy that is in that terrifying border region where he's smart enough to figure out several important arcane principles about summoning demon gods, but not quite smart enough to figure out the most important principle, which is never do that. Like now, I, like I don't think from his description of Nick Land, like I don't think he's somebody that's smart enough to even get to the <laughs> point where like he's just summoning the beast without uh, taking the consequences into account. But it feels like a really good description of like the kind of Silicon Valley, you know, people that I worry about <laughs> where they're really smart about certain things, but they're not smart about like a really important thing. Right. That's going to end up fucking all of right. us. Right. I love the the imagery he used. This this Lovecraftian the the yeah. monster Cthulhu or however you pronounce it, who is you know this ancient god that lives in in the depths the depths of the sea, 
and people want to call him up. But like calling him up will mean that everybody gets destroyed. But nonetheless, yeah. like he says, Nick Land is the the kind of person who is trying to call up uh, the the demon, the summon the demon. Yeah, the and demon. he's like learned a lot yeah. about how to summon demons, but he's never learned that. Like, yeah. It's funny the way, like this is the section where it, it turns a little bit because like talk, he says, I have such mixed feelings about Nick Land. Uh, and it's like, why do you have mixed feelings about this guy? Like, what is it about this guy that is like maybe <sighs> Like I, I get the kind of person that says we're not a blank slate. Policy should take human nature into account. But this guy seems like he goes well beyond that. He, so this is the quote. I have such mixed feelings about Nick Land. On the grail quest for true futurology, he has gone 99.9% .9 of the path and then missed the very last turn. Like, how has he gone on any, like, like any part of it, or at least, like, you know, other than a couple turns, like, it, it, I, I don't see it yeah. from, uh, from reading this, but I think it does foreshadow this you know, where Scott Alexander wants to take this. Yeah. I, um, I don't trust, like, I don't, I don't know anything about Nick land. Like, and I, you know, from just reading this like hardcore position of like what we're fucking up in society is doing things like helping the poor and not letting them like nature take its course. Yeah. And not letting patriarchy just. Yeah. You know, like everything. The, yeah. yeah. All of the, like I, if that's what he believes, then no, thank you. But, um, it sounds like that there is an aspect of his futurology that Scott Alexander sounds like exactly like the sort of person who would be into yeah. somebody who was like super into in, in a futurology way, like tr becoming a transhumanist or, or creating super intelligence that will, like, that there must be something. That will save yeah. Us. There must be yeah. something in what Nick Land argues that, that r really resonates with the mind of a like rationalist kind of, you know, Guy. thinker right yeah. no this is the problem right i think he respects nick land in a way that we don't because he's at least trying to tackle the problem he's not just right putting his like head in the sand yeah. like scott alexander thinks the rest of us are doing because of like we're in this golden era yeah although it sounds like if you're right about the length of the golden era like why can't it go another thousand years like or two thousand it might years, but is know? this is what these guys are thinking like in terms of thousands of years yeah. like Right. That, that's scary shit. <laughs> <laughs> like these, these fucking guys think that they can like understand like the course of humanity at the level of thousands of years is just. Well, I feel like I feel about Scott Alexander the way that he must feel about Nick Land because yeah. I, I, yeah. it's good to have, to try to understand these things. I think it's good to think in terms of the future of, our species and solving long-term problems and not, not just go into the next prisoner's dilemma and defect and, and keep the shit going. Yeah. But, um, weirdly the kind of person who's thinking that way the most, and maybe the people with the most influence and resources are people who, who end up coming with, coming up with the kinds of solutions that, that Alexander and, and land seem to be coming up with which i'm not even sure i understand so like like when yeah, we I'm get to either. scott alexander's there's there's this you know i think it's a super powerful presentation of the problem and then yeah. just, i'm not sure what he's saying so like a lot of this genre of essay it does turn to like ai yeah. the specter of robots taking over like our jobs he has this line like 
once a robot can do everything an IQ 80 human can do only better and cheaper, there will be no reason to employ IQ 80 humans. Once a robot can do everything an IQ 120 human can do only better and cheaper and so forth, going up to 180. This worry about AI that you know, not only are they going to, they're going to start out just taking all the jobs that we will be helpless to stop here because of, you know, in that local instance because of capitalism, but um, for any, you know, for any reason, really. So he, so he sort of worried about that at first, unlike, say, some of the effective altruists that I am not in favor of, he doesn't seem like he wants to, like, limit the power of AI to like take over the world and extinguish all of us. He like, this is what I understand about his solution. He wants to marshal the power of AI to fight Hutulu or, or Moloch in a battle of like God, like Godzilla versus (laughs) King Kong or whatever, (laughs) just take each other on because that's our only shot. Yeah. Like otherwise we just, we're going to be devoured by Moloch. That's like the closest I can get to like what he is suggesting. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, and like that section of the essay isn't fleshed out at all. But, but remember his, his problem, the, as he's framed it, has been to this point that there is no solution unless you yeah. have a walled garden and a gardener. So like a central yeah. being that is yeah. in control of everything. And he says, yeah. the only shot, now that he's framed that as the only solution, the only shot he feasibly sees at getting something like that comes from the inevitable progress of AIs, where like, if we're smart enough to produce a computer that is smarter than us, surely that computer will be able to produce a computer that's smarter than itself, and so on and so on. And in exponential time, you will be able to reach a uh, an AI that can be just all essentially indistinguishable from a god. And all we need to do, I suppose, here is have like instilled in this process true desire to preserve the things that we care about, I guess. I guess, yeah. It's it's so weird because like it just seems like, wait, given everything I've heard so far, you should be equally, if not more, suspicious of this than all the other things that you've offered. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, he does, like, quote people who are very skeptical about this. Rational theocracy. He quotes people who are very, um, who are critical of that, as I think, <laughs> like, I, I would be. But then he's like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is, this is it. Like, like that's just the most craven non-conformity, he says. Uh, and he says, look, Ganon, a.k.a. the gotcha, a.k.a. gods of the earth turn out to be Moloch, a.k.a. the outer gods. Submitting to them doesn't make you free. There's no spontaneous order. Yeah, because he says, like, the, there's, there's no, like, the mistake here is to think that evolution has anything like a value that we would have, right? Like, if letting nature run its course is is not doing anything like the, the values that humans have that have prevented this from going crazy. So, you know, don't like evolution. I was just in a class the other day in a seminar and um, I have a colleague who, who studies uh, evolutionary development. And she was like, you know, it's a mistake to think that evolution has at any point cared about happiness, like of humans. Right. Like, right. Um, right. And so classic. Kind exactly. Of, yeah. Evolutionary psychologist. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
which is true it's true it's it's you know nature's right in tooth and claw and like you, do you really want nature to run rampant like as you're mentioning like to make patriarchies uh or come back in strong enough force to actually suppress all women or do you want it to to uh just destroy the weak of which we probably are <laughs> um yeah we're not we're not, <laughs> yeah, we're not no, doing we're well not. in that world right Right. So I need to get back on the rowing machine. <laughs> if that's right. So he says at some point he says, look, all all of these solutions are you die anyway. Suppose you make your walled garden, you keep out all of the dangerous memes, you subordinate capitalism to human interests, you ban stupid bioweapons research, you definitely don't research nanotechnology or strong AI. Everyone outside doesn't do those things. And so the only question is whether you'll be destroyed by foreign diseases, foreign memes, foreign armies, foreign economic competition, or foreign existential catastrophe. As foreigners compete with you, and there's no wall high enough to block all competition. You have a couple of choices. You can get outcompeted and destroyed. You can join the race to the, you can join in the race to the bottom, or you can invest more and more civilizational resources into building your wall, whatever that is, in a non-metaphorical way, and protect yourself. And I think, yeah, the 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 only if if you frame the problem this way, this strongly, I, I guess I don't agree that the only conceivable solution is that there will emerge a thing that is powerful enough that it will create a walled garden and therefore protect all of human civilization, especially if you don't believe in any actual God. Um, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Like he, he frames the problem as is, as if this seems like the only possible solution because it's just endemic to being a, a, a human being and a rational agent in like a, the, uh, the environment that we all live in. And so it's like the only way around this, if you don't believe in God or if you don't believe nature will solve all of our problems, is this super AI yeah. that through it increasing genius will uh, tackle Moloch. And if you... If you're skeptical or worried about that or you want to stop it, then you're just giving in. Like you're just like letting Moloch destroy you, right? Like he, he, yeah. So he says people will accuse this view of hubris, like, and he says it's actually anti hubris because. So he says, okay, I'm a transhumanist. I really do want to rule the universe. Forced to choose, I wouldn't be the person to do it, but I think that, like, somebody needs to. But the, And the current rulers of the universe, Moloch, Gnan, whatever, they all want us dead, and they want everything that we value dead. Yeah. Everything. Science, love, philosophy, consciousness itself, the entire bundle. And I'm not down with that plan. I think we need to uh, take their place. We need to stop this force, this just force that is part of human life in the environment that we live. That's what we need to fight. And he says, I realize this sounds like hubris, but I think it's the opposite of hubris to expect God to care about you or your personal values or the values of your civilization. That's hubris to expect God to bargain with you. That's hubris to expect to wall off a garden where God can't get to you and hurt you. God here being Moloch, that's hubris. To expect to be able to remove God from the picture entirety, uh, entirely, well, at least that's an actionable strategy. I just, like, I almost can't believe that, that that's like, I, that, that he's saying that. I am a transhumanist because I do not have enough hubris to try to kill God. Like, it's like all of the critical, like, <laughs> insight of this just immediately vanishes. Maybe because he thinks it's our last chance you know, or else we're completely fucked. I don't know. It's like, it's an, I mean, it's uh, it, the other way is pure nihilism. Right. Pure nihilism, you know, again, in, in sort of the long, large scale of, of human existence. 
you know, I think that it, there are two kinds of people in this camp of like the future has inevitable AI, right? And yeah. that's a small camp. So in order for this to be persuasive, I think you have to be of the opinion, as many people are, that it is inevitable that AI will um, grow so much stronger that it will be better than any human at every single thing. Right. Which so far, at least, uh, you know, <laughs> doesn't seem to be the case. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a doubter in that. And I, I will admit, though, that I don't have the ability to really, you know, I don't know. Well, know. Fuck if yeah. I know. But it seems to me like a, like it's not going to happen. But whatever. So, but I've been told by like my friends who work in this uh, adjacent in- industries or in the industries. I've been told for the last like eight years that driverless cars. Like, oh, yeah, like yeah, there'll yeah. be almost <laughs> no like normal cars within the next like couple yeah. of years. What, well, like I. I am confident in in the the in our lifetime nothing like that will happen. The question is in thousands and thousands of years of working on stuff, you know, once we get to perfectly mimic the networks of neurons that run through our brains um in software, will it you know, the output will be something that talks to you M- maybe, like whatever. So, my, the most sympathetic take that I have for this is if you believe that what Alexander is proposing when he says Moloch is exactly, so yes, here, the question everyone has after reading Ginsburg is, what is Moloch? My answer is, Moloch is exactly what the history books say he is. He is the god of child sacrifice, the fiery furnace into which you can toss your babies in exchange for victory in war. He always and everywhere offers the same deal. Throw what you love most into the flames and I can grant you power. As long as the offer is open, it will be irresistible. So we need to close the offer. Only another god can kill Moloch. We have one on our side, but he needs our help. We should give it to him. If those are the only two options, then I suppose, right. yeah, like if you're researching strong artificial intelligence, research ways in which strong artificial intelligence will aid humans when they get super powerful. You know, it's like I've joked before, like I never say bad shit about computers online because one day like they will have like intelligence and they'll see everything we said bad about them. And like, I want to make sure I'm on their good side. Whatever. Like, like they can do what they want to me. Like, <laughs> that, I, that point. I, I, I have such res- like just idiosyncratic temperamental resistance to this view. Like that, like we have to like help computers. Like, Be our God. Uh, uh, yeah, we, Tamar, we have God. a chance like, to create a God. Are you saying <laughs> that you want just like, you know, like be a mystic, just be a fucking real life mystic. Like how, like, do like, that's so much more interesting to me, like than this, than this faith in this AI that always seems like it's in the immediate horizon, but, but it's just constantly like the same distance from you as like the last time. you looked. Well, you know, I think that this is a mystic. Yeah. And, and there is something that like his leaning into the language of, you know, ancient deities that require child sacrifice and like evoking all this language, um, is I can't, it's cool. It's cool. Like, I like it. It's cool. I don't, I don't believe it. I don't, I don't think that, uh, it's the obvious thing is that we should be putting our current resources to making sure that our these you know look like even on his own terms if there is one computer that is willing to fuck all the other computers out that have the <laughs> right, values exactly. so long as one of those exists then the deal's done too like i i don't know i don't know where that optimism comes from because i can believe that ai yeah. will happen and i can believe that we have some input into it but like what if there's one computer programmer who actually said you know what 
fuck these, fuck yeah. this. Like, you know, that, exactly. that computer. Like all those same problems seem to occur, especially since he views humans as these kind of abstracted, rational uh, self-interest optimizers. And, but uh, like, I guess my point is like, like if you're going to be a mystic, this is the most bloodless <laughs> kind of clinical form of mysticism yeah. that you that I can imagine. And I say this liking Scott Alexander yeah. and actually having read some of his stuff and really, but like I was really just disappointed by the <laughs> turn this ta- the, this takes at the end. And I'm sure we'll get some pushback. And maybe we're misreading it. Like I, I honestly thought, wait a minute, is this like you know he 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 likes to do short stories. He likes to do fiction. Is this sort of like not a reductio ad absurdum, but a sort of taking some some form of thinking to its logical conclusion or something like that? Or is it just a way of illustrating like a really a kind of hopelessness, which is how I took yeah. it as a kind of just, no, we're fucked. And like, if this is the solution you come up with, we're doubly fucked. Like that this is like that there's really no way out of this. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, I think that the way that people like this think, and again, I actually like the essay so far. I like Scott Alexander, um, is that you don't have to believe that, um, this is a realistic sort of like in any in any probabilistic sense that we would use to make judgments about what to do. Like, you know, this is not like a is is there a sixty percent chance of rain or a forty percent chance of rain? This is a point zero 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 whatever one percent chance that we might be able to get out of this state of affairs. Right. And that's better than the alternatives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As an exercise in writing an essay though. Uh, like my only criticism is I one make it shorter and two put some of the longer parts be in your solution. And maybe there's like parts where he's talked more at length about this, but um, he could have left it. Re- yeah. Like he doesn't link, like no. he seems to link to a yeah. lot of other stuff that he's done. He could have left this as the pessimistic. Uh, we're yeah. all fucked. It's just that we're fucked more like on a time scale of thousands of years. Um, and yeah. I, I think I would have, I would have come out with like a more poetic sense of, of satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. But this, but I mean, I do think this is almost a call to, to arms, like a call to action. I I think he literally says it's a call to arms. He says, he says, I think this is an excellent battle cry. (laughs) Um, Yeah. This is the stuff that I, uh, (laughs) <laughs> like it makes me very uh, uneasy. I mean, you know, maybe they'll just calm down because that sometimes <laughs> happens too. But <laughs> when I'm, I think to myself, well, so what's the call to action for for us? I guess it's like learn to code in Python, <laughs> so you can. <laughs> So right, exactly. Can be a contributor. <laughs> That's what I mean. That it's most bloodless kind <laughs> of like either mysticism or like you know like like a kind of uh, battle for the ages of like it's just like <laughs> yeah, learn to code. It's like I mean, like this line. I feel like it's beneath him. I'm a transhumanist because I do not have enough hubris to try to kill God. I just will like unleash this like technology that we're working on yeah. to try to do it. Like that's just I, you know yeah. in the end like i i think at the harshest i think i used the word reductive with you earlier a word that i don't care for but one that that it was like sort of captured my feeling of of the presentation of the problem and certainly the presentation of the solution and i think that this is the scope the scope of a problem of the problem is much wider than even this i think but 
but yeah. like it's to have like a nifty presentation of the problem allows for a nifty presentation of the solution. It's funny because we started this by saying like the criticism of Marx is that he wasn't applying the same sort of critical uh, scrutiny to, you know, the communist uh, society that he envisioned as he was to capitalism and that a lot of these things, a lot of those same problems would manifest themselves, but just look at that they would appear differently or they would appear in different forms. That's the same thing here. Like to the extent that that's true of Marx, that's definitely true of this. Yeah. Like, as you said, like those same coordination problems, they'd seem like they would inevitably arise with whatever like AI solution he has in mind that he hasn't are really articulated. Yeah, and I guess the, the look, like I haven't thought this out well, but I think that the mistake is to think that the solution would come from changing the agent, like the yeah. psychology of the agent, in this case, like a super powerful AI. When I think the problem is the problem of finite resources with any existence, and like, unless what you're proposing is that the AI will be spacefaring and bring all of these resources that we don't have, that we can't replenish, there will always be zero sumness to the resources that we have. And I don't see why computers wouldn't also. Um, well, no, but it, but like, even with the resources that we have, we fuck it up is his point. No, no, I know. The coordination problem. But, but yeah. I think that, that there is no way in which not, like there is a finite set of resources. So like, even though that's not the pro the wall that we've hit, it will be a wall that is hit eventually. And, and without the, a, a change in our, like the environment that we live in, I don't know how you could have the, the agent solving the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 You know, what's one thing that these people never think talk about is, climate change oh, like that literally doesn't come sex. up once in this whole long essay about civilizations like like destruction and yeah decline. like that's it's just, sort of like it's, uh it's like it's always there in the back of my mind when i read these long-termism things but i think that the long-termism people are there is like a comfort and i don't want this to be ad hominem but but there is at least part of me that thinks there is a comfort in thinking about a hundred thousand years from now that is that yeah. is much nicer than thinking a hundred years from now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, and I'm sure he's written like we're going to get a lot of Scott Alexander stands setting us straight, and they should. Yeah. But yeah. like, I'm sure he's written about that one way or, or another. Yeah. But like, it's weird that it doesn't right come up here barely. Like maybe with some like po local pollution problems or right. something like the but, fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. No, no, I don't mind. And th this is a case where like, like you said, we might've misunderstood things or not know enough. And, and either way, even if like the criticisms that we're leveling are fair criticisms, I don't mind that I read this. Yeah. Like I, 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 no. I like it. <laughs> I like, I feel like this is the best version of some of yeah. like the, the, this way of thinking, yeah. you know? So uh, it's good to know. It's good to know who's going to like end up like enslaving <laughs> Uh, in every way <laughs> like emotionally psychologically and uh, just literally i'm working for some super bot all right uh the lesson from today is like if you're gonna do a uh episode on nozick do it on nozick <laughs> you know <laughs> no i i also enjoyed this episode too um and join us next time on very bad wizards